down a threat to decency and humanity. Last week, along with cocaine, what is it today? It's more than one small country. It is a big idea. Because of oppression, has new Chemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McCroy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to continue our study into the secret history of the world that you were never taught. This will be part two of the series. I don't know how many episodes we're going to go with this. We'll squeeze as much as we can in here tonight. Where we left off last time, we discussed some of this secret history that you probably have never heard about before. Likely, not at all. You won't hear about this in school. You won't hear about this much of anywhere else, except for perhaps some of the secret society groups, if you get high enough into the political structure of those societies, and you wind up as part of the power base, or in the highest echelons of the associations and then you are deemed worthy of the secrets of the ages, and they will tell you this secret history of the world. And previously we discussed how Atlantis came into being, and what Atlantis, that civilization, was like, and how it changed through the course of time. And of course, where we left off was the remnants of the Atlantean race. Well, they settled in Central and South America, and they were the culture that were are now known in modern times as the Mayas. And then from there, we talked about a little bit of this Mayan culture that distinguishes it from just about everything else. And now tonight, we're going to explore just where this Mayan culture spread out across the world and settled in other places. Now, these are said to be the remnants of the Atlantean civilization. And as we'll see, as we get through this, many different cultures around the world have had a remnant of the Atlantean civilization settle within their groups. This is, of course, according to the secret schools. So you do have to take it all with a grain of salt. There's really no way to prove this nor disprove it. They claim to have been handed down this information from a very long lineage of people recording this within the secret occult fraternities. So you kind of have to take them at their word. But when you begin to connect the dots, a lot of things begin to make sense when you understand this secret history. So let's go ahead and get back into it. The first colony to be established by the Mayas was that of Akkad. 
In the very beginning of Maya civilization, only a short time after the landing of the Mayas in Yucatan, and long before the sinking of Poseidonus, going to pause for a second here, folks, just to refresh your memory, Poseidonus is what we would commonly call Atlantis today. This was the remnant of this lost continent of Atlantis, which really began to sink beneath the waters long before the massive cataclysm that sent what was left of it, this Poseidonus, the remnant of Atlantis, completely under the sea and separated the cultures in the European lands and in the Americas from one another, as we discussed on the last episode talking about this. If you missed that, go back and give that one a listen first before you get into this. Some interesting history here. So anyway, let's continue from there. So a short time after the landing of the Mayas in Yucatan and long before the sinking of Poseidonus, a party of missionaries set out from Mayak. The mission was one of education, religion, and commerce. The Mayas, being an aggressive and conquering race, they sought expansion in every direction. They came to the coast of Western Asia. A party of explorers sailed along the coast of the Indian Ocean to the Persian Gulf and thence up to its head. There, seven of them landed under the command of Oannes, he who dwells on the water. However, we must not make the mistake of taking this in too literal a sense. The fact that they were commanded by Oannes simply means that they were a seafaring people, and as the natives of the country were dwellers on the land, they would give the name Oannes to any people who came from over the seas. Also, the number seven is rather suspicious. This is one of the most sacred numbers to the Mayas and to all other mystical peoples, and hence we are justified in looking for a mystical meaning in the number. Seven being the number of completion, we are to understand that this was a thoroughly equipped colony that settled here. They had with them an organized priesthood, a civil government, and an educational system, as well as a thorough commercial establishment. This party of colonists went ashore and were the first Maya colonists to land on Asiatic soil. The landing was made at the mouth of the Tigris. They ascended that river to its confluence with the Euphrates. Entering that river, they followed its course of about 65 miles and founded their first settlement in the marshy lands, to which, on account of the nature of the soil, they gave the name Akal, A-K-A-L, a Maya word meaning swamp or marsh. In the course of time, this word became altered to Akkad, and therefore the name Akkadians was given to the dwellers in the marshy lands at the mouth of the Euphrates. These details, or the most important of them, are also to be found in the work of Barosis. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. A couple of key things to note here. So it is claimed that this Mayan culture, that was actually the remnants of the Atlantean race, or the Atlantean people, settled in the Yucatan area, and from there they spread out across the world and set up colonies. One of these first colonies was known as Akkad, or the land of the Akkadians. So these people, these colonists who settled there, became known as the Akkadians, and they were descendants of the Mayas, who in turn were descendants of the Atlanteans. Now, 
we see here they entered the Tigris River at the confluence with the Euphrates, and they followed its course, and it says here about 65 miles. So we have the number 65 crops up in this historical narrative quite a number of times. Now there is some significance to this, I am sure. Occult significance. I'm not sure exactly what the intention is here as to why Dr. Raleigh points out in this book this number 65 quite a few times. If you go back to the first part we talked about, when Atlantis sunk beneath the shores, the island of Poseidonus, the remnant of Atlantis, what was left of the physical land, when it finally sank beneath the shores of the ocean, 65 million people allegedly died there. This is according to this record given to us by the secret schools. And once again, we have now they settled 65 miles in from where they landed initially with their colonists with the intention of building a colony. So there's some significance to the number 65. Now, of course, you could do the simple math and add 6 and 5, and it turns up to be 11, which is significant in magical workings. But you also will notice that the author here decided to point out the notion of the number 7 being hugely important, too. So we have this confluence of numbers going on here. So there is some type of encoding here. I haven't really begun to try to decode it yet. But there is an intention embedded here. There's a hidden meaning underneath this history. So could this be just a literal history? Possibly. Possibly not. Or are there hidden contexts and meanings here? I would most say, certainly say, even if it is an accurate history, there are hidden contexts and meaning imbued in this writing. But at any rate, let's continue on. They surrounded their settlement with a palisade of reeds for protection against the lions that abounded in those marshes, and also for defense against the aborigines of the alluvial plains of Mesopotamia. Their settlement thus enclosed they called the Enclosed Place, or Kalti from the Maya Kal, K-A-L, Enclosed and T-T-I Place. In course of time, the Aborigines, changing the T into A-D, called them Kaldi, K-A-L-D-I, by which nickname their tribe continued to be known in aftertimes, when as Chaldeans they became numerous and powerful, having acquired great influence through their learning. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks, just to give you a little bit more side context here as well. The name Kaldi, K-A-L-D-I, is also associated with the mythology of the discovery of coffee. Interestingly enough, Kaldi was allegedly the name of the goat herd who discovered coffee. The story goes his goats were eating some strange berries they found, and they began dancing erratically and acting very energized, and he noticed this. So he began to harvest the berries, this goat herd named Kaldi, and he boiled them and made them into a drink. And lo and behold, we have coffee from that story. 
Now, is this a true account of where coffee really came from? Well, it's been mythologized, so who knows? But we definitely have the roots in this time and place of this modern drink that we know as coffee, which, by the way, is the number two most traded commodity in the world, second only to oil. Did you know that? Coffee business is a big business, so don't let Starbucks make you believe for one instant that maybe they're hurting if they're closing down some of their stores. They're not. So that's just a, a casual aside for some of this. I found that interesting that we have this tie over. But of course, we've all heard of Chaldeans in that regard as well. So could these be actually the descendants of the Mayas who were in turn descendants of the Atlanteans? Hard to say. There might be something to it. Maybe not. But that was just an interesting little side note that is a mythology that kind of has arisen around the discovery of coffee and through the coffee trade. Thought you might be interested in hearing a little about that since we're talking about history, hidden history here tonight. There's a lot of hidden history, folks. There's so much we don't know about our past. And we have to bring to question the things that we do know. Is it true? So much of our history has been convoluted, it's hard to say for certain. But this is the tradition kept within these secret schools for a very, very long time and hidden away from the public. So does it give it some credence? Eh, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Maybe they have other agendas at play. Hard to say for sure, but it does give you an interesting viewpoint. A lot of times the dots connect when you begin to look at this stuff and you see especially when it comes down to some of the agendas that these dark occultists who run things in this world have in play. It has everything to do with their belief in what their history is. So let's continue on, though. In a short time after the establishment of this settlement, there were several thousand other Mayas who came here and settled, and in time the city of Akkad, or Akal, became a great emporium for ships, which traded with all the outlying countries, and thus, in time, it became the greatest maritime center in all the Eastern Hemisphere. In this way was built up a great commercial empire, the seat of which was Akkad. In time, this city dominated all of what was later known as Lower Chaldea. This city was, in fact, the capital of the entire country and became the favorite burial place for all those anywhere near. It is known now as Moguer. In their tombs, they used the pointed triangular arches which were used in Mayoc and which characterize Mayan civilization wherever it may be found. Not only was this true of the construction of the tombs, but the position of the bodies was identically the same as that in which they were placed in Yucatan. Loftus, Chaldea, and Susiana, page 134, gives this description, which is quite accurate, of the position of the bodies. Quote, the body was laid upon the matting. It was commonly turned upon its left side, the right arm falling toward the left, and the fingers resting upon the edge of a copper bowl used, usually placed in the palm of the left hand. End quote. To understand the significance of this practice, we must bear in mind that the Mayas placed the body on the left side with the right hand resting on the left shoulder if he were a man of some distinction. The bowl was the symbol of a, the vase, 
which was supposed to contain the man's good deeds. It was, in fact, what theosophists would call the receptacle of the man's karma that was to go over to his use in the after-death state and also in future births. This vase for the reception of the man's good deeds was the measure of his justification, and hence it was the vase of justification. Among the mayas, it was resting on the stomach, or rather the abdomen in many cases. Among the Akkadians, the bowl resting in the palm of the left hand symbolized the fact that one carries his good deeds into the afterstate with him, and that it is on the basis of his good deeds that his future status is to be determined. From this it is to be seen that they did not believe there was any forgiveness of sins, but rather that one must earn salvation for himself. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. And this continues to be the belief system of many up until this day. They believe one must earn salvation for himself. That's what they believe in the secret schools. They think you can build your own salvation. They call themselves the builders. The ones who get things done. This is what they believe of themselves. They're the philosophers of fire. They're the builders. They take matters into their own hands. They take responsibility for themselves and their own actions. And they do the good deeds to outweigh the bad deeds they do in belief that they can earn their own salvation in this way. If their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds... They are building towards a better future for themselves in a future life or a future incarnation or a future state of some sort. This is what's taught in many different secret schools, in many mainline religions as well, as well as many philosophies. This is a, something that most people believe to be a truth. That if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, well then you've earned your salvation. That's not the biblical viewpoint, though. You see, according to the Bible, no man can earn his salvation. It's something that's not achievable in the natural flesh. It's not something we can do. And this is where there's a juxtaposition between some of these different secret society belief systems and what can be construed as true in many regards. Now, it can be said that at one time, man maybe did have to atone for his sins, and in this atonement, it was said he can be justified, and being justified, then in that way, he kind of earned a type of salvation, but it was insufficient, so something greater needed to come along. And that's where we get into the story of Jesus Christ. Something greater to come. And make a way where there was none before. But you see, in the secret schools they teach you can earn your own salvation. And that those who take the quote-unquote easy path, or the path of those of the waters of faith, as the philosophers of fire like to call them, they view that as being the lazy way of doing things, the unambitious way of doing things, 
and the less respectable way of doing things. This is how they view it. They think that it is more honorable to earn or build your own salvation, to make your own path, to work in antithesis to what the natural order of things is, instead of accepting the free gift and taking this path wherein the road has been laid out for you and there's less resistance. But see, this is much of what's been done in our modern world and in our modern science. Rather than working within and with the bounds of nature, we work against the bounds of nature. And it's an uphill battle. It's a spitting into the wind. And these people earnestly believe that if they do that enough, and if they are stubborn enough to do that, or steadfast would be the word they would use to describe stubborn, they think eventually that they can get there. They can earn their own salvation. And it's a pipe dream. Like I said, it's much like spitting into the wind. What kind of a result do you expect? It's working against the grain. And it's unsustainable over a long amount of time. And this is exactly the kind of ideology that they've built up around this transhumanist notion of things. They think they can do it better. But the problem is, they face so many obstacles because they're working against the natural order. And they keep pushing and pushing, and as they push and as they build more and more towards this transhumanist goal or posthumanist goal, the more energy is required to sustain what they've built and continue to push forward. So it eats up time. It vampirizes time and energy. And this is essentially what they're doing to themselves. And it's unsustainable long-term because, you see, nature always self-corrects. We have that example handed to us in the Bible with the story of the Tower of Babel, and we might touch upon that a little bit here. That ties into some of this secret history. But let's get back to the reading. Enough of my aside about that. So we have the Akkadians had settled here, and they claim, this is the claim of Dr. Raleigh here, that they know that these Akkadians were descendants of the Mayas because of some of the burial rites that were practiced that are the same or very similar to that of the Mayans. The settlement of Akkad, having become a town, is was called Hur, H-U-R. We've heard of this before, right? From the moon goddess, which was the principal divinity worshipped by the inhabitants, King Yorick raised a temple to her honor, which is an almost exact facsimile of the temple erected to the god of the sea and also as a royal archive at Chichen. Her grew to be a great center of religion as well as of commerce and science, and it was here that the real Akkadian civilization centered. In the later centers of life, they were merging more toward the Chaldean or Babylonian civilization, which was in reality nothing more than another and later development of that of the Akkadians. The second capital 
of the Acadians was situated 25 miles from her in a northwestern direction on the east side of the Euphrates and about 8 miles from its banks. going to pause for a moment here, folks. 25 miles from her and 8 miles from the banks of the Euphrates. 25 and 8 is 33. I always find the numerological encodes in this type of stuff. Is it a coincidence? I don't think so. Probably some communication going on here, just through the use of numbers in this case. But let's put that aside for now and continue on, because the story of the history is the fascinating part here, rather than trying to decode hidden messages right now. And like I said, take it with a grain of salt. No way to really prove nor disprove this stuff. But when you look and you begin to connect the dots seems to make a lot more sense than the mainstream narrative we're handed in our history books in school, doesn't it? Let's continue on here. This was built by King Yorick. The name of this city was Lalik, Lao, Companion, and Lak, Rude, the Rude Companion. Lalik, spelled L-A-L-L-A-K, Lalik. And the roots of these words, and these are allegedly taken from this Mayan language, Lao means companion and Lak rude, so the rude companion. In time, the spelling of the name was changed from the Mayan to the vernacular form, and the result was the name that became Larak. Some 15 miles from Larak to the northwest, and on the same side of the Euphrates, was built the sacred city where dwelt the god Anu and his wife Ishtar and her priestesses, the sacred courtesans. This city, sacred to Anu and Ishtar, was at first called Uruk from the name of its builder. Later it was changed into Erek, and later into Warka. 65 miles from Uruk. Going to pause for a moment there, folks. There's the 65 again. Let's continue, though. 65 miles from Uruk, on the east side of the Euphrates, 30 miles from its bank, on the edge of the Avage marshes midway between that river and the tigris was erected the last great city of the acadians this was nib pool nib meaning an offering and pool meaning a jar that is the place where offerings of jars are made the god bel was the principal divinity of this place and offerings of jars were made to him this city flourished more than seven thousand years before christ since that time, it has been destroyed, and four superimposed cities have been built above its ruins, each one being built over the ruin of the one below it. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now, we have some information here, where we have these cities, where newer cities were built on top of them over and over and over again, on tops of the ruins of other cities. And then you wonder why the mud flood folks go all crazy. Because we have this. I mean, you have demonstrations of this where new structures are built on top of old ones all over the world. This is a thing that's known from civilizations past. So, yes, it seems like there's structures that have become somewhat buried under the, the ground and newer structures built on top of them. And sometimes they're merged together they build the new one on top of the foundation of the old one and something doesn't look quite right 
So you know that one portion of the building is older than another. So this is recorded here. And of course, this idea was known to those in the secret society groups. But let's go ahead and continue on. There was in Nippur a most extensive library. For some 23,000 baked clay tablets have been recovered from it. This library was situated in the Temple of Bel. There were also a great number of very valuable works of art, only a few of which have been recovered so far. The city had the most improved methods of sanitation, equal to the best in Europe or America at the present time. They made use of the Keystone Arch and many other modern improvements. Going to pause for a moment here. So this was a very advanced civilization in antiquity. Settled in Nippur, in Akkad, this region of Akkad. And they said that they, they had sanitation methods that were equal to the present time. And, of course, this was written in 1916, so think back to 1916. Still an impressive feat for an ancient culture that seemed to have flourished 7,000 years before Christ, according to the mystery schools. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> but anyway, seems like it was a pretty advanced society. Let's read on and see what else we could find out here. Blue was the mourning color of these people. This is proven by the fact that many of the coffins still have a coating of blue glaze upon them. As blue was the mourning color of the Mayas, this is of great value as a proof that they were the same people as the Mayas. Going to pause for a moment here, folks. So once again, making connections back to some of the burial rites to show the connection to the Mayan people. So the Akkadians and the Mayans, one and the same people, according to the mystery schools. You see, it always ties back to different ideas than what you think. And this is why the occultists have been so fascinated and so very much vested in the development of America, the New World, because it's not really the New World, it's the origin point. It's Atlantis. It's how they intend to get back to that golden age. That's why America has such a great political influence in this world. That's why it was established as thus. You see, they recognized the new Atlantis. And in fact, Bacon wrote the new Atlantis. So we have all of these different connections here, and this is why. This is why they show this reverence to the idea of America, why they've used America as the focal point for bringing about this new world order. Do the pieces of the puzzle begin to click together for you yet? When you think back and you look back, if you look at all of these occult teachings, they always invariably talk about a golden age of antiquity was a perfect utopian socialist-type environment. And this is what they're trying to establish in the world. And, of course, they tie this back to this 
race of the Atlanteans, or this nation-state of Atlantis, these people, the Atlanteans, as we discussed in the first episode talking about this, that was during the Golden Age of civilization. And this is where they seek to return. It was a highly technological time. It was a highly spiritual time. And the civilization flourished. And this is what they seek to invoke in some new type of way. An octave step above that last golden age. This is what they seek to establish through the use of America as a tool to get there. Because this is the new Atlantis in their system. So we have these connections back to the past. You see, we go back to the future. You thought that was just a clever movie title. This is what they've always been seeking to do. Bring back that golden age. That's what it's a reference to. But at any rate, you see, they revered this Mayan culture as the remnants of the Atlantean culture and it has set its roots elsewhere. And these are the claims made in the secret schools. Like I said, take it with a grain of salt. Can't prove nor disprove it, but this certainly is at the core of why they do the things they do in this world. These dark occultists who run things and these political powers in high places in this world. And these spiritual powers in high places. Because these are the beliefs that have led them in the direction they're going. But let's go ahead and we'll continue on. So once again, Dr. Raleigh made an important point to tie this back to Mayan culture once again by pointing at some details <coughs> that may be overlooked by most. So let's go ahead and we'll continue on here. Nippur was the seat of Akkadian culture until the Akkadians were gradually transformed into the Chaldeans and erected the city of Babylon. Being Mayas in their descent, they preserved to a great extent the Maya system of government and society, though in the course of time the feminism of the Mayas disappeared from among them to give place to a more masculine form of society. Nevertheless, it was from these Akkadians that the primitive feminine impulse was derived which exercised so much influence over the ancient Orient. They were a poetical and hence a symbolic people, and therefore their form of government was based upon the mystical symbolism they had brought with them from the Mayak. At the same time, we are to bear in mind that their civilization, partaking largely of utilitarian form was destined to cause them to lose sight of the more spiritual element they had held in Mayak. One point, however, which is well for us to bear in mind is this. Their form of government was a theocracy. The real rulers of the country were the gods. There was a celestial hierarchy that ruled in the heavens, and this celestial hierarchy had its counterpart in the terrestrial hierarchy that ruled as their correspondent upon earth. From time to time, their theology underwent changes, so that first one, then another, god or goddess, had ascendance over the others, and the color of the celestial hierarchy was changed accordingly. 
This being the case, the terrestrial hierarchy was of necessity bound to change accordingly. This was the real reason why the government was never stable in its constitution. The king ruled as the vizier of the supreme god, and he, he, he and excuse me, and was his servant to do his will. This being the case, there was never a permanent constitution to the country, for the supreme law of the land was the will of the divine hierarch, who ruled the gods as expressed through the king as his hand and the high priest as his mouthpiece. As the god who ruled the heavenly hierarchy was not at all times the same, it followed that the complexion of the government changed that of the celestial hierarchy organized or recognized by the ruling class. In many countries, there is a definite principle which is universally accepted as the foundation of government, and any government that falls short of this principle has forfeited its right to exist. However, among the Akkadians, this was not the case. The supreme law was the will of the gods. At the same time, there was no definite authority among the gods. First one, and then the other, was in the ascendancy. Now it was the duty of the king to express the will of one of the gods above that of all others. It was at the head of the hierarchy at that particular time. going to pause for a moment here, folks. So now we have this notion that the Akkadians adopted this system wherein the celestial hierarchy commanded them, was in charge, and this celestial hierarchy had a in and out door, a rotating door, of which God was the main divine being in charge at any particular time. And of course, the government here on earth had to reflect that as above. So as above, so below. We see that notion coming into play. And this is what was said, and this is why they said wasn't really a stable type of government, but it worked for them, because it was all about the will of the gods, expressed as the will of the rulers, or the ruling class. Now, do you understand a little something more, and who are these gods that they were speaking of? We'll get there at some point. It's not the creator, not the actual god. These are not the gods that are being spoken of here. It's something different. And we'll get there. I think you could kind of use your imagination and maybe understand a little something by the use of your discernment in these things. But let's go ahead and continue. So it says, When the king established the cultus of one of the gods above that... Sorry, when the king established the cultus of one of the gods above that of all the others, it was assumed that that god had gained ascendancy over the others, and that the king was acting under his direction when he placed that cultus above all others. At the same time, every one of the gods had his own particular nature, that is to say, an individuality of his own, and therefore the government must take particular tone when he ruled in the heavens. It was this principle which led to so many apparent contradictions in the form of government. It was the duty of the king to see that all served the gods, and particularly the chief god. 
Each city had its own patron god, and for that reason, when a city became the capital of the country, its god was recognized as being the head of the hierarchy. For if this were not the case, how could it be that his city was at the head of all the cities in the nation? This became clear when we realized that Akkad was a sacred land, ruled absolutely by the gods, and further, that its government and its geography were patterned absolutely after the heavens. The entire idea underlying the Akkadian system was to form on earth an exact counterpart of the heavenly hierarchy, and all of its laws and customs were derived from this idea and founded upon this laudable ambition. Of course, the practical working out of this system was the placing of absolute and unquestioned power in the hands of the king. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So absolutely, they understood the importance of the energetic principles associated with astrology, the sky clock, and they patterned their cities and their governments after these energetic influences, these forces, these gods, as they named them, and perhaps there were certain spiritual powers that took up residence as these gods, as these city patrons, these patron gods of these various cities, places. And, like I said, we'll get there a little ways further here. But... At any rate, you could start to connect some dots when you realize this. This seems to be a blueprint of sorts for other things to come. It's about this switching, this revolving door of these different energetic principles in the natural world at play. And they sought to reflect these here in the terrestrial realm below, as they are reflected above. So are they talking about literal gods? Or is it some type of a natural energy? Or is it a combination of both? Or are there... Are there... Deceiving spirits that step in and claim to represent these energetic forces and claim to be these gods? Well... We'll take a look at that aspect of things in a little while. Let's get back to the historical narrative, or the historical account as given by the secret schools here. Much of the archaeological information contained in this article is to be found in The Word, issue of May 1913, article, Origin of the Egyptians, by Dr. Laplongin, and all our readers are urged to procure the magazine and read that article. The author has made some use of said articles in procuring data for this contribution to the Maya history. However, the other matters, dealing as they do with the inner life of the Akkadians, are drawn from the secret archives of the Hermetic Brotherhood and are authentic in every detail. Going to pause for a moment here, folks, as we conclude the chapter on the Akkadians. So much of the archaeological evidence cited is derived from Leplongin. Leplongin, Dr. Leplongin. In a 1913 article, he had written about the true nature of some of the discoveries in Egypt and where 
many of these things have come from. Now the rest of the details are filled in by Dr. Raleigh from the archives, the secret archives. This is directly from Dr. Raleigh's mouth. The dealing, as they do with the inner life of the Akkadians, are drawn from the secret archives of the Hermetic Brotherhood and are authentic in every detail. So the Hermetic Brotherhood had and still has secret archives. All of these other secret society groups have secret archives. The Vatican has secret archives. What is in some of these secret archives? Well, this is claimed to be some of the information about our past, and who knows what else. Hard to say what could possibly be in there. But let's go ahead and continue, just so you understand. This is not me making things up about these secret society groups. They tell you in no uncertain terms who they are and what their intentions are and what they're all about if you give them enough time and attention to do so. If you read enough of their stuff, you find out this is most certainly what they're about. They will reveal to you many things about themselves, about their organization, including the fact that they keep secret, hidden documentation of information that's important for the world to understand from the masses. They keep it hidden away in secret archives. Let's continue on. So next, we're going to touch on the Chaldeans. The Akkadians, in the course of time, sent out many parties for the purpose of founding settlements. One of these parties came into Upper Chaldea from the east by the way of the country of Shinar, that is, Lower Chaldea, or Akkad, and were strangers in the land into which they entered, that is, Upper Chaldea. And it says, see Genesis 11.2. They settled on the right bank of the Euphrates, 65 miles from Nippur. I'm going to pause again. There's that 65 again. Let's continue. And there built the ancient city of Borsippa. Here they erected a high mound called to this day Bir Si Nimrud. This mound is the exact facsimile of the great mound at Isamul, which was dedicated to Queen Mu, who was Atlantis and the Red Atlantean religion also, as shown in a former editorial in Temple Talks. She
Then there is a mystical meaning to the name also, for Bel is the way, in the sense of being the course of nature, and in that sense became the name of the feathered serpent as the evolving universe or the process of creative evolution which constitutes the universe. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. Now we have some interesting bits of information being relayed here from Dr. Raleigh. The feathered serpent represents the evolving universe or the process of creative evolution. This is the god of the mystery schools. Creative evolution. And when you understand that, so many other things in this world begin to click and make sense. Why have, are they so vested in the notion of pushing Darwinian evolution? Because it's all about the materialization in the material realm in which we live in of the manifestation of this creative evolution in a real physical sense. That is what they're trying to invoke here. You see, it's a type of a spell, folks. It's a type of a thought form, an egregore. Evolution. That idea has been implanted into the minds of men now from the ideas promulgated by Darwin, and of course Darwin's ideas were heavily influenced and were actually brought about to back up his cousin, Sir Francis Galton, in his teaching about eugenics. That's right. Go back and look at that history, that sordid history, and you'll know some things about the true nature of Darwinian evolution, what its intention is, and why it was established in the way that it was. And it draws on this archetype. The feathered serpent... The Feathered Serpent. Now, what was one of the main cruxes that got people to buy into the notion of evolution? Well, the discovery of dinosaurs around the same time. Dinosaurs, you know, those serpent beings, which now, many years later, they claim they probably had feathers. They were feathered serpents. Dinosaurs are feathered serpents. Evolution. Do you see how they play these mind games with you? How they use and manipulate these archetypal energies to impact your unconscious mind in ways you don't even realize. This is what's been done. This is also what was represented by the Tower of Babel. As we'll read here, and of course I find it ironic that the mystical meaning of the way means the course of nature, when clearly... They've gone ahead and inverted the natural principles. That's why the Tower of Babel fell catastrophically as it did. It was an affront to the natural order, and nature always self-corrects. And therefore, it saw its end catastrophically. And thus, the inversion principle was put into play with all of it. Let's continue reading here, though. So we have this mystical meaning which relates to the Tower of Babel. And of course, Bel, the way, 
became the name of the feathered serpent as the evolving universe creative evolution that's what this represents creative evolution which in the modern parlance of the mystery schools and the modern parlance of the transhumanists would be self-guided evolution at this point self-guided evolution let's continue on in this sense it was dedicated to the god of our ancestors and this indicates that they were mayas in every sense of the word they not only preserved the same style of architecture but had also the same religion as the mayas for while the mound on which the tower rested was dedicated to Vakub Kakix, the tower itself was dedicated to the feathered serpent, or bell. This proves beyond a doubt that the first settlers in Borsippa were Mayas. The city of Borsippa was built around the base of the tower, and for a time was the seat of the Chaldeans who had come here. At a later date, the city was removed some 12 miles farther north and was then called Kala, from Ka, C-A-H, which means town or city, and La, the eternal truth, God, the sun, hence Bel, or the feathered serpent, the way. Therefore, it became known to the foreigners as the city of the Lord, of Bel, or Belus. By the Greeks, it was called Babylon. After the building of Kala, Borsippa became the residence of the Chaldean priests and became therefore the seat of Chaldean sacred learning, just as her was that of the Akkadians. In the course of time, the Chaldeans became so powerful as to completely absorb the Akkadians so that Akkad and Chaldea became one country, as they had all the time been of the same race. This led to a new development of religion and philosophy and a new type of civilization, so that a new type of humanity was evolved, thus making the Chaldeans a new type evolved out of the former Akkadians. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. So, now we're beginning to see the ramifications of the fall of the Tower of Babel, according to the Mystery Schools, this was an evolutionary process. A new type of humanity evolved from these old Akkadians, and these were the Chaldeans in this sense. So with the fall of Babel came a newly evolved humanity, a new type of humanity. And is that not the way they view things with the fall of each civilization evolves a new humanity? Let's continue on here. So among the Chaldeans, the king was the high priest whose title, Rab Mag, is but a slight transformation of the Mayan spelling of the word Lab Mak, the old man, the venerable. The title of the Mayan high priest was Hak Mak, the true, the very man, the archetype. To understand the meaning of this, we must take into consideration a very profound hermetic doctrine, that of the first man, or the anthropos. According to this conception, the original man was not as we have him now, but was the very image 
of all father mind or primordial ideation. He was even above the Logos, or Thoth, and was, in fact, the perfect image of his sire. He was also male-female in the state of perfect balance. In time, he descended into incarnation and became the human man as we see him, or rather, as the first race were. However, the first man is held up as the perfect archetype of humanity and as the state to which all must return in the course of the evolving cycles of time. This first man is the true, the very man. Hak-Mak, the high priest, is supposed to be the type on earth of this first man and to be the vehicle through which he is made manifest on earth. Again, Lab-Mak, when used mystically, means the older, the venerable man, in the sense of the first or archetypal man. When the king as high priest is called Rab-Mag, the meaning is that he is assumed to be the type on earth and the vehicle for the archetypal or first man. And then he says, see the origin of the Egyptians by Laplongin in The Word, volume 17, number 2. Also, Laplongin's Sacred Mysteries Among the Mayas and the Quiches, pages 30 through 45, where much data will be found on the above details. So I'm going to pause for a moment there, folks. So let me break down some of that word salad, because a lot of that goes back to these alleged Mayan words describing this first state of mankind. And of course, this is described in all of the Mystery School teachings in much the same way. He was dual-sexed, he was male-female, and he was the perfect image of the divine here in a more physical type sense. But before he took on the nature of things now, before he descended into incarnation, you see, this was the first state, according to these mystery school teachings. It was known as Adam Kadmon, the grand man, in some different iterations here. And this was the lower reflection of the individuation of man from his divine source. And it is said that in the first state, or the first race, as given here, man didn't have the capacity of in intellect as he has been given now. This is how it's taught in some of these secret schools. He had the creative forces of both the masculine and the feminine within him, and he was able to replicate of himself the race, but he did not have the capacity for intellectual thought or the creative power to do more than just procreate his race in this way. And he existed in kind of a vegetative type state. He wasn't really a thinking type of a being. He just kind of existed and was in a very primitive type state in the evolutionary process in this way. But he was the perfect representation of all of the aspects of what later came to be known as man. So it's an interesting correlation that we see here. He's talking about this very same thing and how it goes back to this first or archetypal man, the first race. 
of men, which predates both Atlantis and Lemuria in their system, goes way, way back. And of course, this ties into their ideology that we go through these cycles of time and that this is part of this creative evolution cycle. And we ascend through these different states and we descend back again, back into them. And round and round we go, but each time we're kind of raised an octave up into manifestation. In a sense of speaking, I don't know if I could really correlate this in a proper fashion for you if you haven't read an awful lot of their works, of their cosmological conception of things. <coughs> it's hard to picture. It's hard to comprehend in many ways. But this is kind of what they teach. And a lot of it sounds very convoluted. And a lot of it sounds very confusing. Especially for somebody who hasn't really read deeply into these occult subjects before. You wouldn't know what's being talked about here. But at any rate, this is what they teach. This is a reflection back to the first or archetypal man that was represented here. And they make the connection here once again back to the Mayas. Now this is the same culture now here in the Chaldeans, but the Chaldeans, you see, they further evolved from the Akkadians, who further evolved from the Mayans, who had further evolved from the remnant of the Atlanteans, and on and on we go. And it all ties back to these various root races, as they claim here. But go back and give that first episode a listen if you're a little lost here. Maybe try to listen to them in order. And it'll start to make a little more sense. But let's continue here. So it says, The most important of the Chaldean gods were Ishtar and Bel, or Belus. Hence, their religion was a development of that of the Akkadians. However, we do not find the Anthropos conception among the Akkadians, and therefore we see in the Chaldeans this important departure from the former system. Also, there was another distinction, and that was in the great attention paid to astrology and magic. Bell was supposed to be the course of creative evolution going on in the universe, and this was supposed to manifest itself through certain differentiations or modes, each of which manifested itself through one of the stars, and in this sense the stars were supposed to be the channels through which Bell operated, and hence the rulers of the process of creative evolution among men. Having accepted this view of the matter, it followed that the stars constituted a sort of intermediary hierarchy between the gods and the earth, and that it was through their intermediation that Bel ruled the earth and hence humanity. Human evolution was supposed to be regulated by the motion of these heavenly bodies, hence all cyclic changes were produced by them and could be indicated by their movements. To know the forces in human evolution, it was only necessary to reduce the motions of the stars to a system. This gave rise to the science of astrology. Chaldea was a sacred land that was modeled after the motion of the stars. In fact, the government was designed as the political pattern of the stellar hierarchy, being patterned after it in every detail. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. <coughs> So do not underestimate the value 
of what has become known as astrology and has been ridiculed by modern humanity. And of course, they've come up with the science of astronomy to replace it. But they take away all the mystical aspects and all of the energetic principles that are inherent there. You see, instead of acknowledging these influences that these energetic influences have had in society here, they equate it back to measurements once again. Oh, we got a gamma ray bursts in that portion of the sky. We see all of this. They, they try to equate it down to some type of a measurable process. And that's all well and good. But the problem is they've lost the correspondence to the effects that it has on us here. Now, see, if you combine modern technologies with these old notions of things, then you have a pretty accurate predictor of various things that happen in the normal cycles of time. Much like we know the seasons, we know springtime comes the end of March, early April, and then certain things begin to happen. The trees begin to bud. Flowers begin to blossom. New life begins to emerge. Everything becomes green. We know this. We could predict this. Well, it's the same thing with these measurements of the sky. This is something that was developed by these people. They understood certain things happen around these certain cyclical movements of the stars. And they equated this to some type of an intermediary hierarchy of forces, which some of them referred to as the gods in the old systems. Now, were these actual physical beings, or were these just a personification of a type of force that was recognized in these patterns of things? Well, you could make the argument either way on that. And then you could also make the argument, as I had alluded to before, where perhaps some other spiritual entity steps in and claims to be this particular god or to represent this particular force or energetic principle in the natural world and abuses and manipulates based upon those ideas. Now, you could think about that stuff and maybe give credence to it or not. Like I said, a lot of this stuff you have to take with a grain of salt, but you do need to understand that there are people in positions of power in this world that very much believe in some of these concepts, and the things they do to act upon their beliefs will affect us all, so we need to be mindful of it. And this, of course, ties back to what their notion of our history was, which is a very different history than we're taught in our textbooks. Sure, we've probably heard of Ur, or the Plain of Ur, going back and some of these ancient cities and they had these pyramids that they built these very primitive looking pyramids compared to the egyptian ones right they're very similar in south america as they were on some of these like the plain of shinar and the ancient city of ur and these ziggurats you remember learning about ziggurats in elementary school if you're as old as me you might remember a little bit about that 
But you're really not taught much about that, much beyond the fact that these were primitive people. And they built these structures, and they believed in all of these strange gods, and they sacrificed people to them and such things. And that's about all you're taught, and it's a very convoluted mess, because a lot of these cultures and civilizations were probably a lot more sophisticated than we think they are now. And they were a lot more technically advanced in some regards. You see, mankind in the past was much smarter than we give them credit for. We seem to think we're at the absolute apex of humanity right now in our knowledge and our understanding of the world around us. Let's be honest, we've degenerated from where we once were. Your average person today knows much less about the world around them than the average person several thousand years ago did. They understood, they knew. They knew certain signs to look for. They knew how to do more things in order to survive than we do. They understood different aspects of nature than we do, much better than we do. We're separated from nature now, very much so. That all has to do with this inversion principle once again that's come into play, but that's a subject for another time. Let's get back to the reading here and the subject at hand. The rays of the sun, and hence the physical action of Bell, coming in contact with the earth, caused the springing forth of vegetation. Thus, the cultivation of the soil became the direction of physical evolution. This gave rise to the idea that the direction of human evolution would be a sort of spiritual agriculture. This system was developed along astrological lines and formed a perfect science of soul culture from the astrological standpoint. This system was called the Nabathean agriculture. It was the systematic culture of souls in accordance with the astrological influences, which were supposed to rule all the motions of the magnetic principle and its effects upon life and consciousness. The educational system of the country was regulated in accordance with this Nabathean agriculture. Nabathean agriculture is of great interest because of the light which it throws upon the general concept of the Chaldeans. They did not recognize individual ideas in any sense whatsoever when it came to education. Their position was that there was a definite course of evolution going on in the universe and that humanity was being slowly evolved in accordance with that process. It was therefore desirable that the people should be evolved in accordance with that type which was to be ultimately realized. In a word, there was a goal toward which all their efforts were to be directed and every feature of organized society must tend to the production of that type. Thus far, we presume all will agree that this ideal was most desirable. However, the problem is ever-present as to what the goal may be. In a popular government, the educational system and the public policy of the government are ever subject to change. And with the evolution of the people and a monarchy, it would be assumed that the private opinion of the king would determine the policy and the educational system of the time, but this was never the case in Chaldea. 
for the reason that there was no question as to the goal of education, the Nabathean agriculture was accepted as an exact science. Although the king was an absolute monarch, he never dreamed of calling in question the Nabathean agriculture any more than a king at the present time would think of questioning the fundamental principles of mathematics. The Nabathean agriculture was supposed to give the last word in the true method of education, and no man ever thought of wishing any other type of man than what its principles would produce if followed. This science of soul culture was, therefore, the basis of every system of education ever attempted in the country. Thus, it was that there was never any doubt as to the type of humanity that was to be realized in the nation. As the Nabathean agriculture was the systematic application of the principles of astrology to the culture of souls, it would follow that the only way it could be changed was to make a discovery in astrology that would show that some of the principles were not in accordance with the laws of astrology. The practical workings of this system was that the astrologers actually dictated the policy of the king, for it was the astrologers who furnished the data for the Nabathean agriculture. Chaldea was therefore the first nation to formulate what was accepted as an absolute science of sociology, albeit a science founded upon astrology, which sociology determined the laws of the nation, although those laws were proclaimed by an absolute despot. Therefore, we have the particular situation where the king had the power to slay an astrologer at will and yet dared not enact a law, which astrologers declared to be out of harmony with astrology, for in order for a law to be legal, it must be a means of carrying into effect the principles of the Nabathean agriculture. Of course, in a country organized upon such a basis as this, there could be no room for individual initiative and the development of individual peculiarities, for every Chaldean had his entire life ruled by the principles of astrology from the cradle to the grave. The entire policy of the government was regulated by the desire to realize a common type of humanity, and every other consideration had to be set aside for the realization of that end. And I'm going to pause for a moment here, folks. And does this not sound like eugenics in certain regards? Does this not sound like communism in certain regards, totalitarianism? You see, a small select group of people decide what the law is and what the outcome is. There was a lot of talk of the notion of evolution back in Chaldea, thousands of years before its alleged discovery in our modern world, right? According to what your science will tell you and what your history teachers will tell you, what the mainstream will tell you. You see, this old Chaldean culture the ones who built this Tower of Babel. These were the ideals that they were pushing and promoting. Like I said, sounds a lot like certain notions we have in the modern era. Things like communism, communitarianism, socialism, 
You see, it's not about the individual. They don't care about that. They're about what's best for the race. It sounds like eugenics, doesn't it? And when you realize how much of our culture today is based on eugenics ideas, once you realize that, it's shocking and you can't unsee it. That's what's going on. And then when you consider that certain pro-transhumanist groups have actually literally described transhumanism as quote-unquote eugenics without coercion, then you begin to understand what's going on here. And if you understand that those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it, then you have another idea as to the intention of these people in positions of power in these secret schools who've kept this information hidden from us. They want a repeat of this. You haven't been taught this on purpose. You see, there's intention intentionality behind that. Why have they kept it hidden? Well, it's all about control. And it's all about farming this perfect human evolutionary direction that they want to. Like I said, eugenics. It sounds exactly like eugenics, doesn't it? See, some of these ideas are far older than you've ever thought or been taught. And they all have their ties back to the occult every time. As much as I wish that wasn't the case every time. It's always the occult. It's always transhumanism. Always, always, always. <clears throat> Anywhere you look with this stuff. But let's go ahead and continue. Because now, Dr. Raleigh says... Here we have the theory that the individual must be sacrificed to the common good worked out to the ultimate limit. For instance, it was held that there was nothing so desirable as the increase of the population to the ultimate limit, and to ensure this end it was desirable that all the women should have husbands, but there were some of the women who were so much more desirable than others. This difficulty was obviated by reason of the fact that no woman had anything to say in the selection of her husband. The women were sold at public auction, each going to the highest bidder, as long as a man would pay anything for her. Those for whom no one would pay were then given away, and when all were taken that anyone would have on that basis, they began to give premiums with each one, giving her to the one who required the smallest bounty for her. Thus the auction went on until all the undesirable women had been disposed of and had carried with them in the form of premiums all the money that had been paid for the most desirable ones. And in this way all were married, and at the same time the desirable women had in reality bought husbands for their less desirable sisters. To those who look upon love as a sentiment, this sale of women will seem abominable, but such must realize that to the Chaldean marriage was but a means of ensuring the perpetuation of the race. Gonna pause for a moment here, folks. This sounds exactly like eugenics talk, doesn't it? <clears throat> 
Gee, I wonder. Let's read on. This is but an illustration of the universal system operating among this people, the object of which was to evolve a civilization in which man was not an individual, but a cog in the great machine. Gonna pause for a moment here again just to accentuate the language that Dr. Raleigh used here. A cog in the great machine. Let's read on. The whole being dominated by astrology and magic, for the government was but the socialized aspect of astrology and magic. And I'm going to pause again here, folks. Now let's, let's use our imagination and correlate some of these same ideas to today. Could it be... That our government is but the socialized aspect of astrology and magic today. Of course, they call that magic today and astrology today. They call those science and technology today. Are you beginning to see a little bit more clearly? Let's read on. The religious intolerance of the Chaldeans is easily understood when we understand that astrology depended for its sacredness upon the worship of Bel, or the universe. Were a people to introduce a religion, the god of which was not subject to Bel, i.e. was supposed to be above the universe, and to govern things independent of it, the will of such God would be stronger than the universe, and hence the influence of the stars would not apply in that case. The result would be there would be another rule of conduct than that indicated by the stars, and that would mean the setting aside of the Nabathean agriculture. As all the laws of the kingdom were derived from the principles of the Nabathean agriculture, to call in question the Nabathean agriculture was to dispute the authority on which the laws rested and thus to overthrow the established order. Hence, all who worshipped any god who was supposed to be able to dispense with the influence of the stars and to overcome them were in fact anarchists and were dealt with accordingly. For this reason, they were perfectly tolerant of any religion, the god of which was under the authority of Bel, but absolutely intolerant of all who claimed for their god equality with or superiority to Bel, and this intolerance was not theological, but political and sociological, for the bell worship was foundation, was the foundation on which the entire fabric of society rested. All who looked upon astrology as being a true science will see the value of this arrangement. And I'm going to pause there. That's the end of the chapter here on the Chaldeans. And we can understand some things. You see, they were tolerant of every religion except for the one that claims that they served a god who was not the universe. They served a creator that was not the same as the creation. Then that became problematic. Not so much in a religious tent context, but in a social and a political context. And we're living in the same type of world today. You see, 
They revered Bell, the universe, the creative evolutionary process of the universe, the great architect of the universe. Are you beginning to put the pieces together? We have the same things going on in society today. We live in a world where everything's tolerated. Except for, oh, I don't know, some of those pesky Christians who seem really preachy and they're hypocritical. They seem to think that they're the only way and that their, their God is greater than all the others. That's problematic for those who follow this great architect of the universe, the Feathered Serpent. I'll let you use your discernment and put the pieces together as far as all of that goes. But at any rate, we see the Chaldeans, they used astrology. They used, used astrology as their key word for science, this Nabathean agriculture. That's what they had called it. This was their absolute science. Today we have what we call science, and we have technology. Like I said, they had these different notions of astrology and magic back then. We have science and technology today. These are the very same things. It's the same pillars upon which all of this is built. When you begin to understand a lot of what's been handed to us of our historical background in this world, a lot of things come into question. A lot of this stuff you're not taught about in school or anywhere else for that matter. And yet they've kept this information hidden away from us. Now, as to the authenticity or the correctness of some of this information, like I said, you do need to take it with a grain of salt, but you also need to understand some of the intentionality embedded within some of this. Whether it's true or not, these are the things that they're teaching these people in these occult fraternities. And there are many people in positions of power in this world that believe in these types of things. And the things they do to act upon their beliefs in these type of things will affect all of us. So even if you think it's absolute nonsense, you need to understand it. And when you do, you have a better understanding as to the why and the how they do things. And how they manipulate the human mind. How they influence us in ways that we don't even fathom on a regular basis. Until we begin to get into some of what they've actually revealed in things like this. 
It's astounding the things you'll find. I just find the historical context of this to be compelling because you could connect some of the dots. I mean, we do see there are different archaeological types of evidence that have turned up that seem to connect to these cultures and to have suggested that man has been in all different parts of the world for a very long time, much longer than what's recorded. And we've had civilizations in the past that seem to have shown evidence that they were more technologically advanced than what we've been taught in our mainline history. We have things like out-of-place artifacts that frequently crop up. They don't fit into the scientific paradigm, so they kind of just get put on the side, forgotten about by the mainstream. There's a lot to this. A lot to this secret history. And there's more to cover. And I think we're going to continue in at least one more episode because the next chapter goes into the Egyptians. And that's where a lot of these things seem to come to rest in the modern view, backwards, at some of these more ancient races and cultures that predate the Great Flood, the antediluvian times. It all seems to have found residence in Egypt, and much of the mysteries were perfected in Egypt. So I think we'll get a little bit into that next time here on this. We'll do a part three to this. Because I think this is an important topic. If you don't know where you come from, how do you know where you're going? And I think maybe some of these people in the secret schools had a little bit better clue as to some of the early origins of man than what's been revealed. So I think it's pertinent to learn all we can about these things. Because although I always do offer you the counterpoints to this stuff, I do find value in a lot of these things that have been put forward by the secret society groups. There's value there. There are some kernels of truth there. There are core tenets that can be very useful in the things they present. Now, they always put in this little seed or kernel of poison with a lot of it and largely that has to do with manipulation through time of many of these people who had their own agendas in mind with this stuff and they've inverted it through the ages but it's kind of always been extant there this manipulation because why would why would somebody keep important information like this a secret from somebody else if it's something that's truly important to humanity as a whole, why is it only a select few that know about it? Think about that. And this is the true nature of the secret, or secrecy. It was the very first mind control tool. This notion of hidden knowledge. And it's all about 
having power over another person. Knowing something that somebody else doesn't know gives you a type of power over them. Or projecting the idea that perhaps you know something that they don't gives you a type of power over them. This has been perfected through the secret society groups. That's what secrecy has done here. It's maintained power in the hands of a select few. Because they have inside knowledge of something that they've kept totally from the outside world. And they've manipulated us into believing fantastical, nonsensical things in this world to be true. They've led us down this path into a fantasy-based reality. They've changed our image of who we are and of where we are and what our place is in this universe. And in so doing, they've established a type of power over us. And we've been so thoroughly indoctrinated in Western culture into thinking that all of these different ideas are archaic or backwards or silly, superstitious nonsense. We miss the forest for the trees when we think in those terms and when we only accept mainstream science and mainstream history as absolute veritas, then we are truly lost. There's so many dimensions to everything. Can't be easily encapsulated in one little tiny box like they try to stuff it. So many mysteries for us to explore as humanity. And that's part of the beauty of life. Of living. Is exploring the mysteries behind things. Now we may never come to absolute resolution to a lot of this stuff. In fact, I don't think we're ever intended to. But that's the beauty in life. Is seeking something out. But anyway, that's an aside for another day, but I think we will continue next time as we explore the topic of the Egyptians. And we'll see what it is they teach in these secret schools about the Egyptians. Where the mysteries are said to have found their perfection. According to some who talk about these mystery school teachings. Anyway, folks, that's all the time I have for tonight. I want to thank you all for tuning in. I appreciate each and every one of you. We'll catch you next time. Have a good night now. Come with me.
See the train.